right, well, I'm glad you're here. We're going to continue our series on talking about getting real with God and, and what that means and what that looks like. And um, one of the things I wanted to do as we got started this morning is kind of get your feedback and kind of take a vote on a couple of things, but also give you an opportunity get to, to get to know uh, me and get to know my family um, a little bit. And so, I, I, you know, different people go back and look at who they look like. Um, do you look like your mom? Do you look like your dad? Do your kids look like you? Do they look like your spouse? Um, some of you are shaking your head saying, I don't look like anybody. Um, you know, that's a different discussion for a different day. Um, but I do want to put a picture up of my mom and dad, and, um, and, and there they are. And that's just, that was just taken last year in Wisconsin when they were up there on vacation in August. Notice they're wearing jackets in August in Wisconsin. Um, so anyway, um, so that's my mom and my dad, and I just want to get uh, just a a general pulse and a feel um, from you guys. Uh, based on the way I look, and, and I know I'm not nearly as good looking as they are, but based on them, how many of you think I look like my mother? I favor my mother. How many of you think I favor, favor my father? It was so funny. The first service was totally opposite. The first serv- the, most of the people here, most hands went up when, when they said I look like my father. In the first service, it, it was overwhelmingly most people thought I looked like my mother. So maybe I changed significantly in the last 30 minutes or so. Um, but it is interesting when you, when you begin to think about who different people favor and who they look like, um, and you think about yourself, you know, who do you look like um, and, and who do you favor? Um, somebody said this to me a, a while ago before um, our second was born. They said, it, to, to, to talking about me and my wife, Amy, that our children have a greater potential to look unlike each other more than any other couple they've ever met because of how different Amy and I look. And that's true. And for those of you that know what Amy looks like, you know that we look differently. For those of you who don't, um, I'll describe it this way. She's pretty, I'm not. She's attractive, I'm not. You know, I, she's very good looking and I'm not. So it's easy to see, you know, what's going to happen. That's why I hope our daughters look like her and not me. Um, but, um, but anyway, I want to get your vote on this. And this, this is our firstborn, Graciela. She'll be three in March. Yeah, I know. Aww. Um, did, how many people think she looks like me? One? One? Two? Um, how many people think she looks like Amy? Okay, well, she looks like one of us, all right? If, if she doesn't look like one of us, we got an issue here, all right? But no, she, I mean, if you don't think she looks like me, then clearly she must look like Amy, even if you know what Amy looks like. All right, so this is our second born. We just had her one-year birthday yesterday. Um, how many people think she looks like me? It's the hair, right? Yeah, I thought so. Um, but no, that, most people say that she is my mini-me, and uh, uh, I just crack up. That picture in the middle was taken at Chick-fil-A this week. And she's just chilling out. She's had her foot up there. She's like, hey, what's up? It's chilly. But, um, but anyway, no, that, that's what most people say. Most people say Grace looks like Amy and, and Sadie looks like me. And so it's interesting how that works in our lives because we begin to identify and look like, you know, different people. And most of the time, it's the people that we come from. You know, we, we, we favor different people. Even my, there are things that I do, I guess, facial expressions that my parents will say, you look just like your uncle or you look just like your dad, you look just like your brother. My brother and I really don't favor each other, but when you saw us together, you would say, yeah, they're probably brothers, but one of us looks like one parent, and the other one looks more like the other parent. Same thing with Grace and Sadie, but they look like their parents. It's interesting how that relationship has an influence on our lives, but we shouldn't really be surprised because the reality is is that we identify ourselves most often in the relationships that we have. 
I'm on your notes there. That's the very first blank. The very first blank says, our identity is often found in our relationships. Think about it this way. The progression of life. When you're a kid and you're growing up, you are somebody's son, somebody's daughter. Um, for me, you know, you are Kurt's son when we were at the ball fields. I didn't have my own identity, didn't have my own name. I was just Kurt's son. You know, when we were at school or other places, I was Sue's son. I always identified my identity was wrapped up in, in the relationship I had with my parents. And that's okay and that's great. Eventually, you kind of grow into your own relationship. You become your own person and you begin to identify as your own human being. You become you. I became Brent. Matter of fact, crowning achievement in my life, oh, yep, thank you. Crowning achievement in my life was this, is, is my brother was, my brother was, still is, six years older than I. And still is, yes, still is. Um, six years older than I. And so we went to the same elementary school, we went to the same middle school, we went to the same high school. Guess what? I was Larry's little brother in elementary school, Larry's little brother in middle school, Larry's little brother in high school, up to a point. There was a day in which my brother, um, had, having gone away to college and come back, um, was serving as a substitute teacher at my high school. Greatest day of my life. He was a substitute teacher in one of my classes. I knew in advance this was going to happen. We had worked out an arrangement. He was the teacher. I was the student. Everything was good. Now, some people knew who I was, and they knew the relationship um, with my brother, but not everybody. And so I'm sitting in a class, and someone that didn't know our relationship looked up, and he stood up, introduced himself. You know, he had his name up on the board in, in, in front of everybody. And he said, my name is Mr. Myers, went through some different instructions and things, and somebody in the back of the class raised their hand. He said, yes, can I help you? He said, I have a question for you. Go ahead. He said, are you Brent's older brother? I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Finally. Finally, I had my own identity, and others were identified in their relationship to me. Now, what happened is, is I got married and lost my identity again. <laughs> I then became Amy's husband, or that guy that creeps on Amy, whatever, whatever the situation was. But that happens in life. You then become someone else's significant other. Um, and then, when you have kids, it goes even further. I, I was no longer, I'm no longer, you know, Amy's husband, I'm now... Grace's dad. I'm Sadie's dad. Of course, you know that. You go to ball games, you go to recitals, you go to different things, and you don't bother with introducing yourself and who you are and what you do. You just say, yeah, I'm, I'm their dad. No, I'm, I'm their mom. And, and it just cuts everything out because you identify yourself by the relationships in our lives. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, when we walk in the context of, of a journey of faith, we need to identify with the relationships we have in our lives the same way. If we think of God as our Father, we should identify ourselves as a child of His. Today, we're going to see the way in which we view our relationship with God directly impacts the way we view ourselves. You hear that? The way we look at our relationship with God impacts how we view ourselves in a healthy way, in an unhealthy way. Even more so than that, what we're talking about getting real with God it requires that we embrace all that he has for us. Just like Dr. Ray prayed and talked about a little bit ago, and the fact that we need to embrace who God says we are. We need to be able to do that, understanding our relationship with him. We're in the middle of a series talking about getting real. A couple weeks ago, um, as we journeyed through 1 John, and, and I'm going to go ahead and invite you now, if you have a Bible or if you have an electronic device and you want to go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of 1 John, um, not the Gospel of John. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
keep turning a little bit more until you get to a book that's one John. And so once you're there, um, just, just hang out at chapter three and I'll be there in a second. But we're talking about the series of Get Real, Lose the Mask. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about the need to experience God and we just need to drop the mask and get real with him. Last week, we talked about the importance of, um, of, of having a fervent devotion before God and being able to follow him and, 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 and understand all that he has for us and how he wants us to live that out. And today we're talking about the idea of embracing God, being able to put our arms around and em- embrace what he has for us. Think about the word embrace for a second. What comes to mind when you hear the word embrace? Just shout it out. Hug, right? Most people think of a hug. Now, when you think about physical contact with other people, there's a natural progression that goes along with that. You know, if you're like Howie Mandel or if you don't know somebody very well or anything, if you're a germaphobe like Canaan, you, you do a fist bump, right? You know, you don't, you, you're willing to make a little bit of physical contact, but you surely aren't going to do any more of that, so you make a fist bump. Then you get to know them a little bit better. Then maybe you're willing to go open palm and do, you know, a high five. And then if you, if you a little bit more, you're willing to do a handshake. And if you're really, really brave, you're going to do the, the side hug, right? You're going to say, I'm willing to hold you, but not that much, Right? But then when you fully embrace them and you fully embrace that the relationship you have with them is real, what do you do? You hug. I'm reminded of the movie Tommy Boy. Anybody remember the movie Tommy Boy? Some of you? When he meets his brother for the very first time, he's like, brothers don't shake hands, brothers got a hug, right? And then he grabs him and he gives him a big old hug. That's the way it is as we grow in our relationship. We begin to embrace them. We do it with ideas. If an idea comes along, we might listen to it for a little bit. We might let it soak in. But then eventually, when we implement the idea, we have fully embraced it and brought it into who we are and to what we do. So today, we're talking about the whole idea of embracing God and what that means. You see, getting real with God includes embracing God. Getting real with God includes embracing God, who he says we are. 1 John, if you're already there, um, I think I've got some verses up on the screen. In 1 John chapter 3, John says this. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want to take some time now as John begins to tell us a little bit about our identity in Christ and kind of break down some key words in these first three verses of chapter 3. The first word that he puts up there, he says, see. He says, see what kind of love. The idea in the, when you see the word see, it means behold. John is basically saying, look, Stop. Listen. Whatever you're doing, put it down. Don't be distracted and listen to what I'm about to say. You think about it in the context of a teacher or a professor who used to tell you in advance. You know, if they said it three times in a row, you knew that was going to be on the test. Some teachers are good enough to say, look, you really need to know this information. It may come back later. Hey, ding, ding, ding. It's going to be on the test, right? John is saying, hey, behold, look, pay attention. This is really, really important. Everything I've said up to this point is important, but what I'm about to say right now, you have to grasp. 
going to be quizzed on it later, all right? So John is saying, pay attention. Stop here and camp out for a little bit. And then he goes in and he talks about the kind, the kind of love that God has. The word kind invokes the idea of quality. And it's not some bottom leftover, you know, type of quality. It's not, you know, the, the, the type of, um, and I don't know, did anybody eat those deviled eggs? If you, I saw Tim walking around. Um, it's my understanding they left them in the windshield of the car for a week. So I don't know. We're not talking about that kind of quality. We're talking about the kind of quality that's like USDA approved, high notch, you know, primo kind of quality. And then he actually uses the word love, this kind of love. And the word that he uses in the Greek is agape, and it means unconditional love. There are no strings attached. Listen to this about God's love. There is nothing you can do to cause him to love you more. On the flip side, there's nothing you can do to cause him to love you less than he already does. That's unconditional love. God loves you. And John is telling us the kind, how quality, how high quality this unconditional agape love is. And he tells us that it's been given to us. The word given invokes the idea of bestowed. It's out of the, ben- the, the abundance of God and given to the benefit of others. It's placed upon you. Um, you think about when you get a gift, it's one thing to just kind of get the gift and put it off to the side. But when you take the gift and you begin to use it and implement it and make it a part of who you are and what you do, that gift has now been placed on you and it's become a part of who you are. That's how God works. He puts his love upon you. He bestows his love to you. Why? Now he's called us. The word called means invited. Means invited. When he says he's called you, that means he's invited you to become. He has placed out, you know, the, the cattle call mentality. He's picked up the phone, he's dialed your number, he said, Look, I'm inviting to you, I'm, I'm inviting you to this. Would you come? So when he uses the word um, called, he, that's the idea that goes behind it, being invited. The next word that's up there is children. When he uses the word children, it's different than what we think about. We think about offspring, we think about kids, but the idea in the original was is that the name was transferred from one person to the next generation. The name was transferred from one person to the next. That meant that was true for blood relatives, but it also meant it was true for adopted children. The name was given from one to the next. My brother, his oldest daughter, um, is one that he adopted. And when she went to the court, she, her name, she was born Brittany Megan Spencer. And when she went to the court, it was funny. The judge said, what do you want your name to be? She goes, I want my name to be Megan Jennifer Myers. The judge was like, well, why? And she goes, because I want my dad's name. The name was transferred from him to her in the whole process. And so that's what it's talking about. The name is transferred from one generation to the next. Notice what John says. He says, it's happened now. The next word in there is now, at this present time. This isn't something that's just going to happen in the future. This isn't something that's off in the distance. This isn't something that we have to look forward to. But it's a reality of who you are now as a child of God. It's not something we have to wait for. So in light of that, as we've kind of pulled these words apart, as we've looked at it, um, I kind of want to go back and paraphrase um, the verses that I just read. Now, understand, this is not an actual literal translation. 
Um, I've taken some heat in the office this week because I've created this, this Brent Allen Myers version, and some people are calling me a heretic. They actually came into my office with rocks in their hands, and I said, okay, I'll call it a paraphrase, you know, back off. Thanks, John. So um, notice what he says. He says this. He says, check this out. This is John speaking to us. Check this out. Stop and think about this just for a minute. Look at the incomparable quality of unconditional love that God has projected toward us. It's this love that has invited us. It's this love that has given us His name so that we become His own. And All of that has already happened. It's not something to look forward to. That's what John is saying when he's opening up chapter 3 of 1 John. So what does that mean for us? If we're children of God, if John calls us children of God and says we're already there because of his great love, what does that mean for us as children of God? The first question I want to ask is what do children do? What do children do? And we know the obvious and some of us, you know, probably would be like, I don't want to tell you what my children do, but if you're available for counseling, I'll let you know. But what do children do? The first thing that children do is, you know, on no fault of their own, they look like their parents. Just like at the beginning when I showed you pictures of Grace and you said, well, she clearly didn't look like me, so the only other alternative as far as I know is that she looks like Amy, okay? And so then when I put a picture up of Sadie, you all realize, okay, well, Sadie looks like, like, like me. And so what we do is we look like our parents. We favor our parents because of what they pass down to us, what they give to us, what they transfer to us because of who they are. So that's one way, one thing that, that, that children do is to look like their parents. The second thing is, is they act like their parents. Whether you want to or not, we pick up the habits of our parents, right? Have you ever said, I will never, ever do that because my mom did that or my dad did that, and then you find yourself doing that, right? Really? Nobody's ever done that? Am I the only one? Yeah, I know a few of you had. And the ones that say you haven't, you're lying. So here's something that my dad used to do. When his, when, his, when his back would itch and he needed to scratch his back, some of you guys may have seen this before, he'd go up to the corner of a wall, he'd put his arms out like this, and he'd kind of rotate his back back and forth, right? First time I saw it, I thought, what in the world are you doing? He's like, my back itches. i got to scratch it. I'm like, okay. So I'm married to Amy probably about two years, 18 months, somewhere in there. Walk into the edge of the kitchen, put my back up against the wall, and I scratch my back. I stopped halfway through, and I looked at Amy, and I said, what am I doing? I have become my father. Now, there are a lot of great things about my dad, but that's not one of the things that you really like, grow up and say, well, I hope I scratch my back like my dad, you know? But you just pick up the behavior because you see the behavior, you observe the behavior, and you follow the behavior that you see. It's what children do. They act like their parents, for better, for worse, but they act like their parents. And the third thing is, is they think like their parents. They think like their parents. A lot of times we, we absorb the values. We absorb the, the thought processes. We, we take on that which our parents lived out. We say, well, why do you act that way? Well, because my parents think that way. Well, what's your thought process? The way you resolve conflict, the way you, the way you think through um, solving problems, a lot of it is you think the way you saw your parents think, and you deal with things the way 
they do. So our thought process, we begin to think like our parents. So what does that mean for us? As children of God, it means we need to learn to look like our father, act like our father, think like our father. Application point is this. We need to learn to conform to the image of Christ. We need to learn to conform to the image of Christ, to be shaped and to molded, to be shaped and molded, to become more like Jesus. Paul says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Talking about those who have a relationship with God need to begin to look like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we need to conform to the image of Christ. How do you do that? Well, just like you did as a kid, you need to spend time with the Father. You need to spend time with him because that's where it comes. The reason I know what my dad did is because I was around him all the time. The reason I know how my mom thinks and the way I think, the reason I think like she does is because I spent time with her. The only way you can do that is to spend time with the person. The same is true spiritually. We must learn to spend time with the Father if we're going to do, think, and act like the Father does. Jesus himself said on more than one occasion, look, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus himself followed the example of his Father, left us an example to follow, which is to spend time with the Father so that we can conform to the image of Christ. About 20 years ago, a study came out and said that couples that had been married a really, really long time begin to look like each other. Have you ever heard that? You know, some people say the same thing about pets. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but but, but they, they did do a scientific study and that people begin to look like each other. And you think that's really weird. But think about it. You're with that person more than any other person. You begin to pick up their facial reactions, their responses, the way they, you know, furrow their brow when they're angry, the way they raise it up when they're excited. You begin to take on their character features. You begin to look like them. Physically, you're still separate people, but you really do begin to look like that person. Why? Because you've spent time with them. The same thing is true as we conform to the image of Christ, spending time with the Father. So, first question is, what do children do? The second question is, what do children get? What do children get? You know, other than time out, other than, you know, treats, other than, that tells you what world I'm in right now, right? Um, other than those types of things, what do children get? The first thing they get is an inheritance. And some people, you know, especially in this economy, it's hard to leave an inheritance. It's hard to do all those things. But the inheritance in, in the biblical sense, especially in the Old Testament, was much more than wealth. It meant leaving everything, giving everything and pouring in and leaving everything behind. But in a spiritual context, when we talk about inheritance, we're talking about that which God gives to us and the things that he provides for us. And you think about in the future, what lies ahead? Because of what God did in sending his son Jesus, we have an inheritance that's waiting for us that one day we can have. That's why God says, you know, anyone who believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. We have a hope in a place called heaven that is waiting for us. That's our inheritance. So God, as a loving father, has left for us, his children, an inheritance in the form of heaven. The second thing that children get, you get certain rights and privileges. You get certain rights and privileges as a child. There are certain things you will do for your children that you will not do for others. Why? Because they're not your children. But you'll do anything for your children, willing to give them. There are certain rights and privileges that go along with that. In a spiritual context, as children of God, 
We've got access to heaven. We've got access to be able to talk directly to the Father because of what Jesus has done. We get spiritual blessings. We get God's, you know, constant presence in our lives. We get these things as rights and privileges because we're his children, because he is our Father. And the third thing is, is there's also certain obligations and commitments. There are certain obligations and commitments. You see, when, when you have a name and God places his name on you, um, there, there's a sense of responsibility that goes with that. I mean, even Spider-Man understood with great power comes great responsibility, right? You ever have a parent or someone say, this is the family name, you need to live up to it. Even more so in a spiritual context, God has placed his name on us. We need to live up to that name. There are certain responsibilities. We are to be his ambassadors. We're to be his champions. We're to be his banner and his masterpiece and that which people see. And, and, and it's a trite phrase, but it's somewhat true. You may be the only Jesus that some people ever see because he has transferred his name to you. And so there are certain rights um, or certain obligations and commitments that go along with this, the good and the bad. So what's the application? The application with this is, is, is quite simple, that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. Paul says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffer the bad, glorified the good. We are joint heirs with Christ in both the good and the bad. That comes from what we get knowing God. So how do we do that? How do we live a life in which we are joint heirs with Christ? This is going to sound really simple, and it's going to be hard to fully understand. You're going to say, okay, well, that's great. I'm glad I heard that. Here's how you become a joint heir with Christ. Just live it. Just live it out. Too many of us don't do that. Too many of us stop short. We get to a place in our lives where we have the head knowledge of, of, of God's deep love for us. And we may even get to the place where we cross the line of faith. And so we have the heart knowledge and we understand that we're children of God. But something keeps us from going all the way to embracing to taking in all that God has for us as joint heirs with him. And we stop short and we sell ourselves short. We don't fully understand what it means to live as a joint heir with Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. You see, this is our life before Christ. Um, and some people may be living this life here today. There's not yet been a point in your life where you've come to faith in Jesus. And so these may be some emotions and some different things that you feel and experience. The reality is, is that at some point we all feel these things at different levels and different ways. And you can see we walk around this way in our lives and, you know, we've got lives of, what does it say, that says regret. And I think we're a little fake over here and, you know, we're broken and we have shame. We may feel alone and, you know, and there's a component of sin in our lives. And we walk around and this is our life and this is what people see. People on the outside, when they see you, they see these things. But you feel these things. This is a reality. This is who you are. This is who we are. And, and, and we go through this, and, and we try to figure out each and every day, how am I going to get through another day? I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then we get to the place where we realize there's, there's a solution. There's an alternative. There's a, a plan in all of this. There's something better out there. 
What is that something better? Jesus. God loved you so much that he sent his own son, Jesus, to die for you. That if you believe in him, you can have the abundant life that he promises. And so what we do is we get to the place where we recognize we need a Savior. And then we get to the place where we realize and understand that Jesus is the only way that we can be saved by placing our faith in him. And by turning away everything that is old. And so what we do is we make the great exchange. And what we do is we we turn our lives over to him. And he turns our life inside out. And so no longer when people look at you do they see broken. No longer do they see that you're alone. No longer do they see that you're fake, that you have regret. No longer do they see shame. Instead, no longer can they read the emotions that you feel. No longer do they have that impact in their lives. It's all different. It's all new. But a lot of us stop short because the reality is, is we don't believe it as much as others. Because when we stand in front of a mirror, when we take time to look at ourselves in the mirror, looking like this, we still see the exact same thing. You see, you can't tell this. Maybe I'll do it this way so you can see a little bit better. When I stand in front of a mirror, even though the words may be different, what does it say? It says the same thing. I can still read where I'm broken. I can still read where I have shame. I can still see that I'm alone. I still see the regret and the fact that I'm a fake. Because when I look at myself, I may intellectually understand what Christ has done for me. And the outside looks different. When I look at myself, what do I see? Do I really believe that there's been a change? You see, we need to understand that God doesn't just take the inside and put it out. And that God doesn't just change us. He doesn't just transform us. But what he does in reality is he takes away the old and he puts on the new altogether. This is what we now look like. This is who he sees. He doesn't see the old. He doesn't say where you were and where you came from. He's not focused on that. People, when they look at you, they may see the old and they may see the, uh, the, 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 the way you were, but this is what God sees now. This is the new. He sees a clean slate. He doesn't see the old. And guess what? When I look in a mirror now, now that I understand this exchange has been made because of what Christ did on a cross, when I look in a mirror now, look, no more brokenness. I'm not alone. There's no more regret. I'm not a fake. I'm not ashamed. When I look at this now, I see a clean slate. I see something that has started all the way over. It's not just a change. It's new altogether. Out with the old and in with the new. Paul calls us a new creation. And so what we need to do is get to that point where we embrace that God has taken this life, that he loves us, that he loves us so much that he's willing to call us our children. And he takes this life and he says, no more. It's gone. This is who you are as a child. This is who I have called you to be. This is my great invitation because of my unconditional love for you, that if you believe that I am who I say I am, that you can have a new life. If there's one main thing I want you to walk away with today, it's this. You are a child of the king. I don't care what the world says. I don't even care what you think. God sees you, and 
God sees a child of the king. And if it's good enough for him, it should be good enough for me. You are a child of the king. John reminds us that we are called out of his great love to be his children. I'm going to invite John and Canaan to come back up here. And there's a song. And the title of the song is, All He Says I Am. And it challenges you to think through who you think you are versus who God says you are. And the reality and the transition we need to make in our lives to get real with God, to lose the mask, and to embrace the idea of who he says we are. You see, it's no longer about what we think or about what others think. It's about what God thinks. And God doesn't think. He knows, he says, and he calls you to be a child of his.
God calls us to be His own. Who are you? Who am I? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. See, you are no longer a slave, but sons and daughters. And if sons and daughters, then an heir through God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's who you are. Not because I tell you, but because God tells you. That's who you are. You are a child of the King. Would you pray with me? With heads bowed, I just want to ask you to think through a couple of things this morning. Just to reflect, heads bowed, no one really looking around. Have you come to the place in your life where you recognize that that shirt with all the words on it is where you are? You wish that you could have a clean slate. Good news today is this that God has provided a way through His Son, Jesus Christ. That if you believe in Him, in your heart, you call upon Him, then you too can know what it means to have a new life in Christ. It's not a magic formula. He's done all the work. He took your sin and your shame. He took mine and my need of forgiveness and He took it to a place called Calvary and died on a cross, a death that I deserved placed in a tomb and rose again on the third day. Whoever believes in Him can know eternal life. Maybe today's the day that you need to ask Him to come into your life. That you give up all that which you knew and you turn to the new life of faith in Jesus. Today I invite you to do that, even now in these moments. Maybe you're a child of God already. You struggle. When you look in the mirror, you still see those things. And you still see... The world may not see it on the outside, but, but you do. And you feel those things, and you can't get rid of those things. And this time, I invite you just to embrace God, all that He has for you, and all that He says that you are. Make it a reality in your life that you are His child. That you no longer have to live looking in the mirror, feeling those things, but instead, you see what he sees. Child of the King. Heavenly Father, God, I pray 
that you would help us in these moments. God, for the, for the one who needs to cross the line of faith and, and trust you, I pray that you'd give them the courage to do that. Lord, for those who are here today and struggle with our past and our history and our baggage, God, I pray that you would remind us and help us to see us as you see us, as your children, the ones upon whom you give your love freely and abundantly. God, help us to walk in that life. Help us to walk in that love. Lord, help us to just be your children to a world that desperately needs to know of your love. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.